0: Hi, I'm John, and no Olivia this week, but instead I am joined by a panel of seven special guests to talk about why the Prime Director sucks, and if it's gonna make us quit Star Trek. Now, Olivia isn't here to immediately start getting angry, so I'm gonna do it instead, which that I think it sucks, I think it's genuinely like I mean, it doesn't suck as a whole. Like, not letting, not like doing colonialism on small planets, fine. Not interfering, in a cling on civil war, less fine. So I've gathered some guests and um, I'll start let's let's introduce them. So um, first we have um, Bodie Ashton. Hi He's going to be talking about why the prime directive shouldn't be applied to galactic powers, and we have Steve. Hello. Steve's going to be talking about why it's not a cut-and-dry rule, and that, you know, it's not playing down. He's going to do that with
1: Lee. Hi there, pleasure to, to join you on the week of the 800th episode of Star Trek.
0: Oh god, yes, I forgot about that, yeah. Um, we're also joined by Tansy.
2: Hello.
0: And Margo. Hello, how are so, you?
3: Okay. I, no one can answer me.
0: <laughs> and we're going to talk about, they are going to talk about why the Prime Director shouldn't be used as a cover for the Federation being an isolationist power, which it kind of is. And finally we have Penny and Wim who are going to talk about why Starfleet doesn't like the prime directive and it never follows it.
4: I have copious notes on this. <laughs>
0: oh dear. I have no notes. Actually that's lot. <laughs> no, I do have that. some notes.
5: Yeah, I don't we're... believe that for a second, John.
0: Alright, so we're gonna start by talking about why it isn't a cut and dry shouldn't be a cut and dry rule. Now the product directive it's like they never specify what it is, but for some reason they seem to think it's very important. So um
1: Stephen Lee, what do you think about it? I well, think it's one of the oh sorry, I'm oh, on you go.
6: Oh uh, I mean we should probably define how they talk about it on the show, just for people who are less familiar, which is probably no one listening, but I mean it's I generally see. a non interference role. You're not supposed to interfere with the way another culture develops or operates internally. Mm. Um, how they apply that is very dependent on who wrote the episode <laughs> uh, which is one of the reasons why i had to take the position that you know it shouldn't be a cut and dry rule because well they never apply it that way in any way so you know if you're going to get a good result you can't apply it as a cut and dry rule because it wouldn't make sense no it just I- wouldn't i mean the the star trek
0: encyclopedia which is mm-hmm. written by um michael akuda says um the Prime Directive prohibits Starfleet personnel and spacecraft from interfering in the normal development of any society and mandates that any Starfleet vessel or crew member is expendable to prevent violation of this rule.
1: I think it's one of those ones that, f- for me, I think um you touched on it really well, of, like, it all depends on, you know, who's writing it and i always think it applies more to the series as well when i think of like prime directive conflicts episodes i think of probably the next generation the original series a little bit and voyager specifically where they tended to be shows that would love to avoid conflict tension within the characters and everything was all quite harmonious within the the crews and setups And when you think like Deep Space Nine, they had that tension within the crew, within the stories, within conflict, within like galactic events. It was just something that would maybe happen every so often, whereas Voyager was maybe a high frequency of it because they couldn't generate conflict within the show. So I think like the prime directive essentially became, oh my God, we don't have much to talk about in Voyager this week again. What will we do? Oh, we'll have a prime directive story or a conflict and it'll all get resolved in the end by Jamie taking what, at times it felt like the prime directive was almost quite right wing in its approach to other civilizations and how we seem to interact with people as opposed to some sort of federation utopia viewpoint.
0: Yeah. I mean, the voyager thing is interesting just from a sort of meta perspective of writing is that it prime directive narratives make it quite easy to be like, Oh, we can solve this in leave it. this episode Cause we have to go is the whole non-interference thing means you don't have to worry about, whether you're going to, what the repercussions are because you can't go back and see because you're not
1: allowed to. I think it's one of those things that you touched on uh, as Michael Akuda, for example, I kind of what when I sort of saw this topic, what got me kind of thinking was I think he posted this quite recently on Facebook and kind of blew my mind where he was talking about like the Federation flag and has these big bright stars and everyone kind of assumed that they were sort of related to certain, the founding uh, founding civilizations of the, the Federation. And what he kind of put it down was that... Um, it, everyone kind of used to think it was be like Earth, Vulcan, and the Klingons that they were sort of some of these early founders. And he was like, someone asked me if the three big stars on the UFP logo represented the founding members. When I designed the symbol, Trek had not yet established the founding members. I did think that the three stars might represent core values, perhaps equality, compassion and knowledge. And I think that's a better prime directive to take out into to the universe because, we see at the prime directive is so poor at times you can have an, a civilization that could be about to be destroyed by a volcano or might need some sort of emergency help with um what's it called like vaccines or something like that things where you're like intervention here would be totally justified especially if you are a quote-unquote peacekeeping humanitarian armada mm. so i believe that instead of sort of having the prime directive, you can have your sort of general orders about kind of intervention, but perhaps that you should take an approach of ha- having a person, an alien-based approach of applying those values of equality, compassion and knowledge.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the prime, Direct, obviously, from, the prime directive exists basically because Gina Kuhn thought that America shouldn't be in Vietnam, <laughs> which, uh, you know, it's pretty <laughs> cut and dry exactly why it's the thing.
7: I think, yeah, in Enterprise, it it was basically established that that was the Vulcan mindset of of the non-interference. Well, now we know why
3: it's bad.
7: (laughs) Yeah. So, like, and I think how it's applied seems, like, really heavily influenced by Vulcan logic, which I wouldn't necessarily say is, is really... Logical,
0: it's Vulcan. What does
7: call it? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 very Vulcan, but like the very hard set. You know, do not interfere. Thing that's just uh, it just really screams Vulcan mindset.
1: And it's one I mean, of things it's they got the Vulcan approach as well, where you take it for example, where it's like I think of the line in Star Trek Six, like, Oh, you're a Homo sapiens only club. Well, I would kind of go further where it's basically you have got to have achieved this very specific way of traveling into the universe to even acknowledge for us to even acknowledge your existence, like in terms of achieving kind of warp drive and so on. If you don't have it, we are just gonna fly by your planet, or if you don't have warp drive, you might be this advanced civilization, but we're just gonna do like a duck blind mission as well. It's- seems to be such a really weird thing of like yeah we're not going to get involved in your uh, you know planet or help in any way unless you achieve this one very specific way of transporting off your planet and into the future
2: just sort of just going back on it it's it's not very Vulcan because it's not necessarily logical I mean we'll cover that later but (laughs) sort of non-interference doesn't always mean that it doesn't involve you so there are logical situations when it wouldn't and it's not it wouldn't strike me as a very Vulcan thing it sounds like a very human non-imperialist thing where you don't impose (laughs) your values on another culture and you don't step in and start to tell them how it could be done better when they don't want you there and you have no right to be there but I think you Did want to you apply ha-
6: something like a prime directive if you have Captain Cook or Captain Magellan. You you don't necessarily need to do that for every single situation. But there are certainly a lot of times where it's like, yeah, definitely don't mess around with their culture, but you know, maybe they can sign a consent form if they want
0: help <laughs> or something.
6: A consent form for industrial replicators.
4: <laughs> One of the things that I've found really interesting is that it seems to be this kind of... The dichotomy about it and that oh it's it's a policy of non-interference like we don't go and interfere in other people's cultures but then as we've just been saying but we're also not going to engage with you unless you behave in this very specific way you know so it's, it's simultaneously we're not intervening but we kind of are because if you want to have anything to do with us you have to behave in a certain way I mean I guess I'd be like well, I suppose that's very white, isn't it?
0: <laughs> God.
5: Uh, don't steal do too much of my thunder yet, Penny. Um, we're, we'll, we're getting
0: to this. We'll get to this. I mean, <laughs> that does remind me of the two, like, the, the one thing that always, like, gets me about the Pride director, whenever I think about it, is um, Friday's child. They go to this planet, McCoy slaps a pregnant woman, that's all bad. But these guys live in tents and used boomerangs, with knife boomerangs. What are the Federation doing there? Like, do these guys, like, have spaceships as well? <laughs> as living in tents and having boomerang knives? Or oh, does You it, it,
8: could
3: say up. the same thing about Private Little War, too.
0: Oh, well, the thing in Private Little War is that the whole point okay, is that they're had trying it, to they'd, up had an the anthrop- anthrop- they'd had an anthropology
3: duck blind there, and I don't have a problem with that. Uh, I don't think we want people out there worshiping the Picard any more than they have to or might want to, but I I don't have a problem with the anthropology, but yeah, it's wildly inconsistent and quite unsettling in its inconsistency. Um, I have no problem with, you know, leaving a a pre-industrial society that, you know, has barely figured out, you know, heliocentrism alone that seems fair enough so although i'll although i will note it, it it's not apparently something that happened to humanity in the star trek universe um but that's uh, by the wayside i guess
0: i mean my i mean i guess i will just of capella is that the federation was sort of at war with the klingons and it was like fuck it we need their minerals <laughs> you know it was, we'll justify it after we do it in fair, but yeah you don't get to do the whole. The prior directive is really important itself. It's Starfleet's so, num- general number one, and so then also I can, the admirals get so, to say, "Yeah, we don't have to count it here."
3: <laughs> so I am totally okay with a rule that says, uh, "Please don't turn yourself into the king of a uh, of a pre-industrial planet by bringing one favor one phaser, and one replicator with you," because that's not good. And I'm sure that and that does happen mostly in the original series anyway, hmm. but. It's not, it doesn't make
7: any sense uh, beyond that to me. And, like, I guess, you know, the Prime Directive, after someone else violates it, then it's okay to violate it. <laughs> yeah, that, that happens all it's, the time. Like, oh, like, someone else broke the rules. We're good to go. That's
0: the whole premise of the piece of the action, which is really fun. But it's also like, oh, they broke the Prime Directive a hundred years ago, right? Get ready the phases. Here we go, boys. <laughs>
5: Just like to maybe bring it back to Lee and Stephen here, because the the idea of this being a not necessarily a cut and dry rule. I think you know if we if we look on Star Trek as being a fiction, which it is obviously, as much as you know. Um, as much as sometimes we get drawn into it so much but it is a fiction and we have so many i can't think of how many episodes we have or novels that we have i know they're not counted as canon let's forget the word canon for a second place um and and all of these things but we have so many episodes and, and novels and whatnot that focus on this lee used exactly the right word conflict The conflict between the characters that we have and this Prime Directive, which we're obviously meant to think is a good thing, and yet it's set up in these episodes as being the thing that has to somehow be overcome. Because if we all had episodes that were like, well, the Prime Directive says we can't get involved so fuck off, you know, that's a pretty boring episode, really. Yeah, I mean, um, that's a short track. Yeah, so I, I think that's really something that, that points to this idea that, you know, even in the conceptions of the people making Star Trek and the people it's made for, it can't be simply a cut and dry thing, surely.
8: Yeah,
0: I mean, we talked about a private little war a bit, and I do like a private little war, just for the fact that at the oh, end, of when Kirk is about to. Poor Robert McNamara and start arming the shit out of these people. He's like, actually no, let's not do this. I guess as the thing, it's presented as a common. I mean Primal War is literally the writers of Star Trek are sitting you down and telling you why escalating the Vietnam War is a bad idea. <laughs> Which, um, you know, that's on them. Within the context of like that question of you the Prime Novics as less being as being a tool for story writing. Yeah, making it that question of how cut and dry it is, is really important. But it's also not really defined by, like, how far they can push it. Like, there is a space for a storyline, story basis on which everyone knows they can push it, but no one knows how far. And that's, that's something that happens a lot in sort of the original series and early TNG, which is massively informed by the original series. But one thing that happens a lot in later TNG and DSI, is that the Prime Directive shifts from being this ethical protection for pre-warp planets to being something that just becomes part of foreign policy. Like, they're dealing with warp-capable people and they're pulling the Prime Directive in. And, um, you know, I think, Bodhi, you want to talk about it not being applied to galactic powers
5: and how it shouldn't be, a bit. Yeah, I do. Um, And one thing that I really want to uh, address here is actually something that I think uh, Penny brought up, and a couple of others actually in this. And I'm moving on to champagne, so you know, I'm being very bougie right now. Um, Cheers! Happy New Year, everyone. By the way. Happy
0: New Year. Oh yeah, it's the new. It's not Mm. twenty twenty. God.
5: No, it isn't. Thank Christ.
0: Um, (laughs) We're twenty one this year.
5: (laughs) Oh God, you're young. You don't know how young you are. (laughs) <laughs> but where was I right
2: um, you're at the champagne
5: I was at the champagne I'm on the champagne there we go I haven't, I haven't <laughs> had too much yet so um the one of the big problems that we have with uh, the idea of the prime directive here and how it's meant to apply to things is as we've already discussed that it's so damn uneven um but one of the major issues here of course is that Everything that's made in terms of a law or an order or a, a constitution, if we will, is, is always based on the history of a place. Um, what we have here, as Penny pointed out and others, um, is the fact that this is effectively an arbitrary distinction that, that the Federation has here with regards contact, with regards how it will go about its contact with other civilizations. Um, basically it's based on this idea of the fact that there is this normative procedure, this normative progress that a civilization will make. And at a certain point, and that point seems to vaguely be when they suddenly invent warp drive, an indigenous warp drive, um, that then suddenly they're ready. Now they're mature. And, you know, there's a whole heap of paternalism involved in that. But it suggests that everyone is going to follow exactly the same phases of history and exactly the same phases of development in order to get to a certain point. Picard has this point in, in an episode. So to paraphrase, I mean, the, the thing was, you know, the prime directive is, is a philosophy and it's a correct philosophy because, what was it, history tells us that every time a more advanced culture comes into contact with a less advanced one, then the result is disastrous. Something along those lines. Now, first of all, the idea of a more advanced and less advanced culture. But secondly, whose history tells us this? Whose history are we talking about with this? Um, Because there are so many ways in which this can develop differently. I mean, if we look at, I know we like making jokes as well about, you know, the aliens should come now and, you know, we've, we've had a bit of a good run, but also a terrible run. And if they come now and destroy us all, then, oh, well, Um, but really like the idea of as, as far as I understand it, at least, and granted, this might've come in from sort of the, the, the more peripheral media as well. Um, but The idea that a civilization creates warp drive and is therefore ready is based on the idea that in its imagination, it can conceive of being in contact with an interstellar civilization. Well, what's to stop, for instance, I mean, there'll be, I I believe there'd probably be plenty of us in this chat at the moment who would probably believe in um, life on other planets, for example. Um, and there's nothing to suggest necessarily that it must be the case that you need to create something like, uh, that you need to get to a level of technological development before you're capable of, of engaging in something like that. So that's the first major problem. And the second, of course, is, again, as we've discussed already, the, the Federation is hypocritical when it comes to this anyway. It is so, so uneven. Um, that the very idea of attaching this to other societies as well and expecting that other civilizations would follow this is nonsense, is is absolute it's,
0: madness. It's complete madness.
5: Um, <clears throat> but do we know for
7: sure if it means warp drive or just interstellar flight? I mean, you know, on, on the Reddit, uh, it's been a matter of discussion <laughs> that does it have to specifically be warp drive or if someone else had developed uh means of interstellar travel be it you know sleeper ships or or some alternate ftl method would that apply would the prime directive apply to them and would they be able to be visited because like if if they're taking interstellar flight then they are at least, ostensibly, have have reached the point where they could accept the possibility of life out there.
5: Yeah, that, that point already is, is one of the reasons why this is so inconsistent. I mean, again, we do see it as a plot point in a couple of episodes. I'm thinking of a TNG one that I cannot remember the name of. Um, and someone will remind me and I'll lose all of my nerd cred. Um, but it's uh, effectively the one in which the Enterprise goes to make First Contact because the civilization is on the eve of making its first It's called twice. First Contact. Of course it's you called, first, it's called contact. first
0: Contact. Because Riker has sex has with an alien with, nurse. Yep,
5: Riker has that sex one. with an alien, exactly. Um, precisely. And... I mean, the the plot point there is principally that they are about to use their the, they're about to embark on their first faster-than-light travel, and therefore they're now ready for contact. But the point there is also um, that we we do have other episodes, and again other spin-off media as well, in which contact is made with civilizations who have interstellar flight but potentially no warp drive. And the the question there stands absolutely. I mean, obviously. Uh, a civilization that embarks on interstellar travel or sends a distress call out into the universe, which is another, you know, cliche plot point, um, must presumably assume that there is life out there somewhere. You know, I feel fairly confident that people pretty early in
3: Earth's history, which is the only history I'm especially qualified to discuss, <laughs> were Any relatively- Victorian history
0: experts here?
3: I mean, I know I know a, more about Bajoran history than I know about a, some real countries, but it's fine. Um, uh, you no, know, I feel fairly sure that plenty of people in uh, the ancient and the early modern world and would have been perfectly willing to accept the possibility of life on other planets and contact with said life on other planets. Um, so it, it is kind of a, a silly progression to think that um, a civilization is ready for peaceable, pluralistic contact when they get to this point of making a warp drive, not a solar sail, not a, uh, I don't know, spore drive or whatever. I mean, I guess that was only us, but it's, you know what I mean. I would also want to say that, um, so this idea that, you know, contact with a more technologically advanced power is necessarily bad for the less, for the less technologically adept power. Uh, Earth history has probably vindicated that, but ironically, um, wouldn't the Vulcans be construed as some sort of a more technologically advanced power than Earth at the time of first contact? Oh, God. (laughs) A beneficiary of of the Vulcan, the apparently Vulcan prime directive? (laughs) <laughs> um. So I'm not saying the entire Federation is based on utter hypocrisy, but like I think we've known that since 1967, haven't we? Um,
2: there was an element of hypocrisy. So very Vulcan. That. But it, well, there was an element of hypocrisy to it because Earth was really pissed off. that Vulcan was withholding its technology from mm-hmm. Earth to preventing it from develop. And then they would create a prime yeah. directive and Vulcan be like, "What? you've just, you've just well, done actually, that. We, so,
3: actually, uh, we were <laughs> never allowed to do that. So shut up. Uh, the Teplana half never existed. And it clearly did because it's like in the Fleet Museum or something. It's That's like, great. Jesus.
0: It's literally pulling. They literally pull the ladder up.
5: But it is seriously, there's, there's um, certainly a, a definite issue with that as well, because we also get the preachy sort of thing that we get in so many episodes as well. Um, this idea that, and again, cliches, you know, Earth went through that as well. You know, this great planetary catastrophe, nuclear war, and almost, almost driven to extinction and all of that, um, as sort of this rite of passage. That you know, and again, this goes back to this normative idea of phases of history, which strangely enough is incredibly Marxist. The 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 idea of the Marxist phases of history. I mean,
0: but, it, it, I mean Federation history always came off as a bit more Whiggish to me. Like everything yeah, but, is always getting better. And then you have yeah. a nuclear what? Yeah. then you have a nuclear winter,
5: and then everything's fine. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And I mean it's this does all go back ultimately to the that, that um, liberal humanist doctrine that really is the the god quote unquote Roddenberry's vision. Mm, yeah.
7: <laughs> that's vision. not what I call Roddenberry's vision, yeah.
5: Yes. That's that's the Ferengi sex, yeah, mm, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah.
6: Steve, I think you had something to say. I feel like, um, using technology is a really weird indicator of when you're ready to make contact with the galactic civilizations because. Okay, let's say you had the Vulcans before they had a warp drive. Like, does anybody think that they would have just been completely incapable of handling it? Like this, you know, philosopher king society wouldn't have been able to process that. And they also encounter tons of societies that have warp drive and are super xenophobic. So it doesn't seem like warp drive necessarily makes you okay mm. for this.
0: But also it's like there the, Terrans. the Terrans. I mean, I think that was by the... the Vulcans.
4: I I think that was I was going to sort of say something very similar but actually relate it more directly to earth history and going like was especially watching the film First Contact I'm looking at this and going okay so we've got one one warp flight one from one country in a vastly divided nation in 2063 Sweet. Have I got that? Three? Yeah, yeah. I watched the film yesterday. There's, I'm looking at it going, I'm, I'm, I'm. every time I watch it, I'm like, I do not believe that Earth in 2063 was ready, you know, because it was, you know, it had all these, these major catastrophes um, wars, you know, famine. We had
3: Q's little court running around, like well, his, it's
4: you ridiculous. know, his, even in we, first contact we weren't ready. We weren't ready. In first contact, they ready. acknowledge
0: they aren't ready because Troy tells Cochrane, you know, first, well, you have the warp drive. We get first contact, and that's what unites everyone. Like the uniting doesn't happen, and then it's warp drive. It's warp drive happens. We the Vulcans happen, and then all the humans suddenly look up and go, "Oh my God, we live with a yeah. tiny ball of dust." Let's
8: actually I feel be like sensible. That's, I, I, feel like well, that's, I mean, that
4: would be really nice, but that feels like it's incredibly wishful thinking, it's, it's, doesn't it? It's really? a like,
8: Does this
5: suggest though that if we've got uh, for example a planet that has you know umpteen different nation states that develop independently of one another, warp drive? Um, because that's that's one of the, the whole points here as well, that this is meant to be sort of this united thing. Um, but if we've got, say, an Earth, except a different Earth, we've got enough Earths in TOS, um, with, you know, 146 nations or whatever, all developing warp drive and all sending ships up themselves, is the Federation hiding from that or what? I think they, well, <laughs> there are some pieces of beta
0: canon, I think it's in complement to the Alpha canon, where they're like, Con- they are in contact with warp drive worlds, but they're like you can't join the Federation until you unite.
8: Hmm.
3: Yeah, there's a there's one TNG episode where half of a pl- half of a culture wants to join uh, the Federation, and it's a whole big kerfuffle about whether or not this is allowed because apparently it's never happened before.
0: Oh, that's is it? The, is that the the high ground, which is the one which is meant like ha ha ha, we're gonna do the troubles, but then it doesn't actually resolve itself.
3: That may be right. I think it's a different... I think it's later than that, though. But honestly, uh, yeah, late TNG was not my favorite.
0: Mm. But it's... Yeah, because I just I think, Stephen, it's about societal development, which is... You know, I just remember, like, Argelius in Wolf in the Fold. It happens more often in TOS, actually. They stopped doing it in TNG, which I don't like. It's like these planets which are clearly not, you know, they don't have replicators. They're not particularly advanced. You know, people, the streets look like they're in Malta, basically. And, you know, Malta in like 1855. But, you know, Kirk and Scotty are getting pissed in there. So did that planet have ships, but just still choose to have its capital city look like that? Or... You see, I think what would make sense is that the Prime Directive is actually a really new thing in the 2260s and, like, Starfleet's just not done it for 100 years and then something happened. But they pretend that it's just always been there, which doesn't make sense.
7: One thing I wanted to to say is uh, in Enterprise, Salvo was telling um, Archer that the Vulcans are afraid of humanity because they've done in a hundred years, what took like 2000 years for the Vulcans to do. So it like their, their whole philosophy of, of the, the non-interference and everything probably worked really well for, for the very slow moving turtle Vulcans, but (laughs) humanity comes along and they're doing all this stuff in, in less than a hundred years. And like, you know, they, like, the, like you said, they pull up the ladder. I think that might actually have something to do with it, that, like, humanity united much quicker than Vulcans did, and they're scared that they might, you know, take that technology and go over. But ultimately, it, it boils down to that they end up forming the Federation with the Vulcans and Andorians and Tellarites. Well,
5: that and, comes down to that know, normativity, that... doesn't it? Like, the... the the whole thing which makes this so illogical is that if that's the case, then the Vulcans are assuming that everyone follows their development. Like, um, I mean, the point is well made, like the humanity has done in a century what the Vulcans took two millennia to do, great. Um, and and I can sort of accept that, but if the- It's very, it's Vulcan arrogance. Yeah, well,
8: like, if if they- We're they, spending a lot of time
7: sitting on Vulcans
0: tonight. And I know, you know,
2: <laughs> Don't do that with me in the room. Yeah, let's
0: um, let's be a bit more. You know, <laughs> say what you want about the Vulcans, but they have been at this for a while.
3: And the Bajorans have been at it well, for thirty thousand
0: years. Yeah, but we both
2: mm. what? <laughs> it didn't I mean, do them it's... much good with Cardassia. No, it didn't. <laughs> well,
4: and there's another thing about you know the the the, the topic at hand, isn't it? Like who. Should it always be unified? Should it apply to certain powers? You know, should the federation have actually intervened sooner? Should the prime directive have applied in that situation?
8: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I would press that more, but I know that Margot has probably a large amount of thoughts on that. As somebody who, as previously said, knows more about Beigel than they do about real countries.
8: <laughs> Before but, we move on,
5: can yeah. I just want? I, can I just want? Good God um can I at least point out the fact that in everything that i've come across so far including the the quote that john had from from mike akuda and in fact in one of the the novels i read recently by david mack who of course i would also trust to have his finger on the pulse with with so much of this mm. the Prime directive applies to starfleet it doesn't apply to the federation at large And that, I think, also is one of those points against it, effectively, and a point in favor of of showing that this is so uneven um, that, basically, it applies to Starfleet and Starfleet alone.
2: So that that does actually make perfect sense um because it's it's federation is the decision-making body where everyone can sit around and discuss whether or not an intervention is necessary or where they're going to go or what they're going to do starfleet being an arm that is out there in the galaxy following the instructions of a federation or it should do is out there on its own weeks away from anywhere else months away from anywhere else making unilateral decisions about whether or not to interfere with something that they come across so having a directive that says you do not interfere until you have come back, and the federations decided whether or not we want it interferes with it, is actually a really good idea. Actually, because otherwise, you have you have pilots out on their own in the middle of nowhere, captains with I'm mean, I, questionable kind of like anthropological and political experience trying to decide what federation's relationship should be with a planet in the middle of nowhere. But isn't, isn't there's an element. That- of kind of like making last minute decisions when it's a direct threat or a direct problem that you don't have like six weeks or six months to get the communication back. But yeah, it's the, the idea
4: that they don't have a directive that says you don't interfere without clearance, it makes perfect sense. But then doesn't that come back in, in next generation when um, uh, Wolf's brother gets into trouble and they, I think they all think, you know, he has, even though he's not in Starfleet, he's there as an official federation representative and he interferes and it is implied that there are, consequences for him, even though he's not in Starfleet. So it's still I mean I so this this whole thing about it only applies to Starfleet. I'm like that might be how it's written out, but that doesn't appear to be how it is applied. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
4: It's partly because it's they had I don't
2: think the writers have thought that through. But no that's 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 the thing about it.
0: I mean it's that it is the other problem with Star Trek writers is that a lot of Star Trek writers just read the Federation as a Starfleet, was a state, you know, they don't separate what Starfleet is from the Federation, you know, and I think what the point Tansy made about it being a Starfleet directive for a time when, you know, in, you're weeks and weeks away from communicating with Federation Central and Starfleet Command, it makes sense because then you can, you're not on the spot, you know what to do.
4: What about when you're 70,000 light years away from Starfleet? (laughs) There you go. Then (laughs) Then you've got other problems. Yeah. like, how? who is this man
0: and why is he cooking on my shit? <laughs> <laughs> how do I get rid of him and the fact that he is nonsense?
4: Swear. <laughs> Neelix's, I Neelix's food is a, is a violation of the Prime Directive every week. Yeah, it's been like, not we not just his food, directive
8: what about his, his hair?
6: Janeway had the Leroy Jenkins Directive. Oh
0: dear. <laughs> but it's, I mean, that season has as well. That is, the, ball. I think, if we just lend that lens, I hadn't thought of what you'd said there, the until you mentioned it's an interesting concept that it is perhaps just in as it exists in the twenty-fourth century, the Prime Directive is a hangover of a time when the Federation was less connected and staff was operating like the Royal Navy does in the eighteenth century, where it's weeks and months away from its superior office and the captain's massive initiative. But by the time no. the next generation of deep space... No, I mean, now, but
2: also the decision-making process itself takes longer. So if, yeah. if it's a big issue that needs debate within within the Federation, or even within the Council of the Federation, whether it's whether the communication can be done instantly or not, the decision would probably, especially interference yeah. in a whole new world and a whole new culture, would need to be discussed in depth before action was decided upon. And even but, when it's yeah. outside of their scope, and the planet is connected, but they don't want to interfere with it as a culture because it's outside the Federation. You'd still need to discuss how you were going to engage with them. You couldn't, again, I wouldn't leave that unilaterally to a, a captain of a ship.
0: Yeah, which I think sort of is a very, this sort of question of council directive is sort of, it's a very nice, this is probably the best segue we've had in nine and a bit episodes of I Quit Star Trek into the next topic, which is, you know, it being used as a cover for isolationism, which I think it is. I don't know if you agree. I think. That in the twenty three sixties and seventies, Starfleet uses the prime. The Federation uses the prime. The prime directive to cop out of inter of intervening where it should. And Margaret is nodding on on the Zoom call, so I'm just gonna hand it over to a large, long, and probably lengthy, and probably very
8: aggressive rant.
3: Um. Okay. So I want to talk about the Bajoran situation because. What in God's name was Starfleet thinking it was doing there? Uh, and the answer is, they're not important. We'll just leave them in these little constant, in, uh, their internment camp. We'll leave them in camps. Um, maybe if they're lucky, they'll be in refugee camps where they might have blankets to last the next couple of months. That seems, first of all, in a, situa- in a society with replicators, great job. That's a different issue, but you know what I mean. Um, so, right. You know, I could imagine them issuing some sort of, you know, Ballford Declaration kind of thing. Oh, of course, we support the idea of a free, self-ruled bejor but we're not, we, you know, we're not going to do anything about it yet. And they never did. Um, you know, okay, so we never really see the Cardass- the first war with the Cardassians that you know Miles served in. Um, but it's never kind of that
0: bad. It's described as being like. It seems like it's raids a, and
3: I've I've always assumed that the Cardassians and are are essentially a second league, they're a second league power, which is why the they're such a perfect ally for the well, ally, quote unquote, because you know if you ally with the Dominion, you're not exactly staying an independent power. But you'll be able to a, Exactly. They're, they're, that's why they're such a perfect little brother to the Dominion. Um so it just is really disheartening to me and maybe fairly realistic uh, to see such a large power essentially um, sacrificing a culture um, just as, poli- as um, politically unviable in its, you know, maybe not recovery, but you know what I mean. Uh, they, they've decided that getting helping the Bajoran cause is just not worth their, it's not feasible, it's not going to happen. And so they're willing to let it slide. And I mean, that's certainly not the original sin of Starfleet, because God knows there's a lot more. But that's a really, really unpleasant situation to find themselves in. Um, And it certainly makes me sympathize with someone like Kira. Oh, and I've sparked some discussion here.
7: Uh, we don't really know much about the the Kardashian Federation War, but we know it was pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. So, like, and, and the Prime Directive, aside from just pre-war planets, it does avoid interfering with the internal um, politics. Which I've of a- never understood. <laughs> Like, what? um, you
3: know, they talk about the circle coup on Bajor being an internal issue when, like, there's obvious – even if there weren't evidence, everyone would know that, like, the Cardassians are clearly
7: taking a side here. What are you talking about, an internal issue? Well, That's insane. Look, look at Redemption Part 2 with, with the thing on Civil War. Like I like by the I just right. I, as they a side interfere.
4: N- they interfere. As a side note, like, no. I
7: think the
3: I, I think calling it the Klingon Civil War is hilarious because their government is clearly just run
7: by civil wars. <laughs> but yeah, like Penny? the Federation couldn't get involved. <laughs> like Picard was in an advisory position until mm. the the Romulan element was released. I or, uh, absolutely like, surreal. Absolutely there? surreal. I feel like well, what one of the things that's. Re- yeah.
4: Like, if you look at Memory Alpha, Memory Alpha like, if you look on their article about the Prime Directive, they're like, oh, well, yes, the Prime Directive, da, 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 except, you know, it was in force during the Klingon Civil War. And I'm like, no, it, it wasn't. What?
2: <laughs> no, it wasn't. Like, ridiculous. And, and, absolutely I, ridiculous.
4: And, and honestly, I'm glad it
3: wasn't because the Quadrant would be a lot worse of a place if the House of Duras had won.
0: I feel like what happened there was that the Klingon Civil War happened. The Federation Council wrapped up to intervene. Then some Starfleet intelligence was like, "Here's the latest Romulan war plan," and they went, "Oh."
2: But that, that—that's so. The thing I have, the problem I have with a lot of people complaining about Federation and Starfleet not interfering when there's obviously bad things going on is—is is, comes from probably a realist point of view in that if there is no strategic relevance to something there is very little argument to try and get involved, particularly if the individuals involved, particularly if the parties involved don't even ask you to get involved. If they ask you to get involved, that's a different question altogether. That's fair. Um, Uh, But it it just
3: does, it just sort of makes me feel like uh, if the Federation happened across Nazi Germany, they would probably let it
2: run yeah, they, its course no but germany germany was germany was of strategic interest to the surrounding countries and the surrounding allies it was, it well, was no of, i'm saying it was if, they, if they enta-
3: if, if they if you know paths of force had developed naturally on that planet that's patterns of force excuse me if the one with john if that's if an, if a fascist adjacent s- state develops naturally on a planet and it's pre warp and it's going around crushing its neighbors I think the Prime Directive would essentially state that this is this planet's natural course of development. There's nothing we can do as much as we might sympathize with the oppressed people within that uh, state. Um, <laughs> oh yes, sorry. John. Oh, and John Gill was a terrible historian. I've I never, sorry, of did course John he was.
0: Gill read inside the Third Reich? Or was that just lost in the Third World War? I hope not. Did, right, just...
3: so I, so, if the Federation is a realist power, and it certainly seems, no, I
2: didn't say realist. I, I would, i I always prefer to use the team, the team. I've had too much of this tonight. Um, I much prefer to use the term um, pragmatist because. Okay, fine.
3: If it's a pragmatist power, if you, if you power, don't understand then...
2: how the how the threat is going to either build and affect right? You no, they're you clearly a the pragmatist
3: relevance. power, which is fair. That's probably necessary, but they really, if they're going to be a pragmatist power. Um, then I all I have to say is that the moralist trappings are getting very old. Well I think that um, again,
2: I don't I don't I'm one of the few really and I I not I'm not really in a in a big majority on this. Who so there's a there's a degree morality morality and ethics are oh god it sounds terrible and you say they're fine, but you <laughs> have <laughs> <laughs> but you do you've got an organisation you've got limited resources you've got limited capabilities you've got a starfleet that i mean i mean i think everything in the galaxy outguns Starfleet, but you've got a, you've got you currently
3: yeah, they're just like, so. All those ships are so fragile. Shots, your
2: shields are gone. You know, it's like yeah. power. It's like, why, why didn't you just use that power to begin with? But <laughs> you, um, you got moderately badly kind of weapon ships. You got limited. You've got limited capabilities. You've definitely got a limited size fleet. I'm not even quite sure how Starfleet works. And um, <laughs> please don't
0: get like, me does started.
2: Earth
0: have a fleet? <laughs> if, if anybody listens to the podcast, would like to know how Starfleet works, I have a 1500 word document telling you how I think it works
7: that's a lot of words for magic
8: yeah, yeah magic.
2: <laughs> they fly it's like i don't know but um, yeah. i need to know if earth is a fleet or not for what i'm writing mm, but the um <laughs> <laughs> sorry to bring that in just just advertising it but anyway but the i'd prefer to say pragmatist because it's I just think there's a lot of people are very unfair on the Federation because they think it's got all these ethics and yet it's not going around saving every planet in the galaxy that's got a problem. And it's like, well, you can't. If they
3: admitted that that was not an option, I would be disappointed, but I could at least accept it. But apparently they're just fine with letting the occupation happen during the 2360s. Um,
7: Or maybe they're not fine with it, but they're
3: not going to stop it.
7: What little we know of the Cardassian Federation War, it was bloody, and it like them letting what happens to the Cardassians do what they do to Bajor is is very pragmatic. Same w- that applies to like the Maquis. Like, oh, don't the get Federation me on is the trying Maquis. to save the Federation is trying to avoid further bloodshed of, of, of the Federation itself.
8: It just what we seems don't,
0: like actually, here's a this question. was a... It, we don't know what would have happened to Bajor if the Feder. We don't know how the war started. We don't know whether the Federation is involved with the Cardassians because they were trying to stop worse things happening to Bajor. That's, it seems like a, I am copping out here. We don't know how much of the Bajoran situation is the pragmatism that Tansy was telling. You. We don't know whether there was this cost-benefit thing done in a Security Council meeting. Well, it a sounds command, to went, me, We can go, we can go into Bejorel and do it, but here's the casualty lists, and here's what we think they do to all of our colonies, and it, here's it, it, what we think the Vulcans it would it say about it. It certainly sounds this. to
3: me like they... There was a not insignificant Bajoran exile community within federation space like th- that random guy dr crusher like danced with in t- talks about dancing with an ensign row, like people like that you know respectable opposition leaders you know maybe people who would genuinely be good in a post-liberation government to P. be Poulos. fair yeah but like you know so they're clearly that. aware of the situation these people if they're at federation conferences I don't know. I mean, are they like, oh yeah, you know, here I am in the Federation. Boy, I sure love your pluralistic democracy. But you know, I'm totally okay with the Cardassians killing my relatives every day, uh, working in the mines. That's fine. I don't need your intervention. They're probably requesting some sort of intervention, or at least very strongly hinting then, at but then, it.
2: But then you're. Then right you're there's no. Actually.
3: But there's no real need for them to do it, mind you. I do think. Um, Doing an early piece out with the Cardassians was one of the greatest mistakes Starfleet made, I think. Um, It seems to me that they would have saved a lot of trouble if they had dedicated more resources to the war with the Cardassians, because then you would have um, had the the wormhole um, earlier. You would have not had to deal with the Maquis. You wouldn't have had to deal with any of this stuff.
0: We are. Um, um, I think what we're doing here is we are armchair staffing commanding.
2: <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. fair. You, you, the long-term consequences of not getting involved in a tense situation are always unknown, and and they are always going to be complicated, and they have been throughout history. I mean classic example with the anglo-egyptian war you know the, the yeah. allies had no position on it they had a strategic interest in it. they had no position on it they failed to take a position until it started hitting them even when they started hitting them they grudgingly sent ships because they had to because the public was an uproar and then it escalated into a full you know north north you know north african egyptian campaign that just went massively out of control because they didn't have a policy on it to begin with yeah, you're so the, esca- you're escalating bloke cartoon,
0: that too don't you? that's how that ends
2: um, more Talal Kabir and um, Alec- the bombardment of Alexandria. Yeah. The, um, the whole, the, you know, the, the unforeseen consequence of not having a decent policy on something can be catastrophic. and uh, Not going in can often cause as many problems as going in. But in the, trying to relate it back to historical cases and real historical cases, in those cases that I could call up in history, the countries had a strategic interest in that area. And until and until Bajor and until Cardassian really the wormhole became strategic, they didn't have any strategic interest in that. That's area. right.
0: So yeah, I think that's the thing about Bejor is so, very explicitly called a backwater planet until
2: no the gods appear path. from
0: the sky.
3: I believe I believe you're talking about frontier medicine. Um Okay.
0: All right, shut up, Julian.
3: <laughs> uh, but uh yeah. So right. So they're pragmatically saying that this is a we are aware of this not human rights catastrophe, because that's very anthrocentric, but we are aware of this uh, catastrophe and this affront to the pluralistic values of natural rights we espouse in the Federation, but it's not important to us because we have more pressing concerns. Although I don't really know what those concerns are before the board show up, but like, whatever, it's fine.
0: You know what, they're upgrading um, all, all of the subspace relays. It's gonna be really cool. <laughs> they can all have a big Zoom party, you know. You could be on three, and calling somebody in the Vega colony. It was going to yeah. be great. I, 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 can, call, well
3: it I can, can call, but I can call every Rigel I want to, and I yeah, still don't know also... how many there are.
2: But if you're also talking about a historical precedent as well, when we do, when, when we historically have intervened on humanitarian grounds, it is not being because we saw a humanitarian catastrophe being walked in; it's because they asked us for help.
3: Mm, yeah, and again, I, I yeah. So I, I, all I'm saying, I guess, is that Sarfleet, well, the Federation knew what was going on in Bajor, knew how bad the Cardassians could be, was fighting the Cardassians, and decided this isn't really worth all of our resources. So yeah, I think one thing So gets- so with isolationism or or maybe more generously, pragmatism and realism in mind, they walked away and they paid the price for it. Now, I suppose it's not fair to say they should have known at the time that you know, the Jem'Hadar are on the other side of the wormhole. Cause like, to be fair, no one did. But uh, if, we're, if we're armchair Starfleet commanding, as John said, I think it's a fair thing to uh, criticize them for. And even if the Dominion didn't exist, it would still be a real, uh, it, um, the permissiveness of the Federation with regards to the Bajoran occupation is still very troubling. There's one it's key line which I
2: took take from the Anglo-Egyptian War, and also from the uh, and also from Khartoum, which is when when Gordon's out there, and also with the Anglo-Egyptian War, and people were coming back to Britain and saying we need to get involved in this, we need to do it. Gladstone's response was, "Why? <laughs> is it is it is it threatening the sewer? Is it threatening sewers? And the answer was no. And he's like, "Why are we going in? Why isn't someone else going in? Why isn't another why is the French in? gone home? Why? why? Yeah, why? And also, I I would also bring up that from what the little of the, the the fan kind of the serious fan writing I've done and read is that is that when you when you've got the it didn't it doesn't preclude the agreements do not preclude individual planets within the federation from interfering if they believe that there is a humanitarian crisis and it doesn't preclude them from you know I want to
3: write a story about like an Andorian uh, like international brigade on yeah, basically So they could have done a coalition
2: they, they could have had technically the member individual members themselves could have unilaterally decided we're going to help out a bit with a with a humanitarian event. That's true. I would assume only because it's you not large enough. shouldn't refer to the
3: federation as some kind of monolithic power.
2: Yeah, I mean, they, they had. From what I read of of the stuff out there on the um on the on the articles. You know, they they. Mutual defence allows you, at least in modern terms anyway, for relating back to real ones that it's based on, allows coalitions to go in and have a look if they believe there's a crisis. But again, I don't think it was of strategic interest to any of the other members.
0: Yeah, I think that's the problem with Bejo is we know it in the um, post-Bajoran wormhole world where it's the, you know, it's the fucking Gibraltar of the Alpha Quadrant, not bumfuck nowhere in Shropshire, which it is before that. Doesn't,
3: but just because it was bumfuck nowhere in Shropshire doesn't mean Galatep didn't exist. That's, and that's yeah. what I'm faulting the Federation for.
5: I think that's a valid fault. I think, Bodhi, you had something to say? I do, which is um, again to relate it to sort of those those actual real world historical examples. Um, and of course, remembering that Star Trek has always been and remains to some extent. It's still sort of uh, the attempt to be sort of America on galactic stage. Oh boy. Um, Yeah, well, um, so let's look at America for instance. Let's say, well, I mean, the problem with interventionism versus isolationism is that there's never a clear cut point. And I mean, Tansy made this point very well. Um, so if we look at 20th century American history, the fact that America went full-blown isolationism immediately after the First World War, thanks a lot Woodrow Wilson being a prick, but I mean, the, the fact that the US withdraws means that the League of Nations has absolutely no teeth, um, which I mean, it oversimplifies obviously, but of course, that's one of the, the prevailing factors that leads to what we end up coming to in the 30s and 40s. So if we start saying, okay, well, America went full isolation this is bad after the war we have america going no we're global policemen now um that's also bad um and a- again the the idea that gene alcune is so anti the uh, intervention in vietnam i mean i'm i'm thinking here also of uh, j william fulbright the senator when he argued against it as well in the 60s um but i mean his point on that as well was not just you know we shouldn't get involved because our involvement is bad for the people we become involved with which is i think what the the prime directive sort of frames itself as here but also it detracts from our he says something along the lines of again i'm paraphrasing here it detracts from our own efforts to perfect ourselves and I think this is kind of the the point that we lose a little bit in admittedly the high-minded morality that the, that the shows and the media attempt to come across with about the Federation. And I think Tansy's got the uh, really important point here. The Federation is a policy. Um, that means that it must behave in some sort of pragmatic fashion. Um, if we're going to accept that galactic civilizations engage with one another in a way that terrestrial civilizations have over the course of history, then we have to assume that the Federation will act in that sort of fashion as well. Um, so really what it seems to me is that um, you know it's going to make decisions according to its own self-interest, which I don't necessarily have a terrible problem with in big scare quotes. Um, the prime directive just offers it sort of a, a neat little out in the cases when this becomes contentious. I don't think even like Star Trek itself
0: goes against that, because there's you know, enterprises is um, yeah. But like it, at one of the towards the end, Archer has a speech where he's basically, I can at the end or the beginning of season two, there's a speech where he's basically like, Yeah, we have these principles and they're high-minded and they're a bit nonsense and we're going to stumble and we're going to make mistakes and we're going to fuck it up. But it's more important that we're Was actually aiming that the writers room talking
3: about the show?
2: I think, I think people misunderstand the principles as well because I think, I think it happens a lot with television anyway. And as everyone loves Star Trek because it, it does have those ethics at the core. But I think people just also misunderstand what those, how those ethics work in a major organization. So you're looking at if you if you're going to do something, anything, and you've got a you've got a council of planets, and I'm assuming that even when they had hundreds of members, they at least had a smaller council to discuss the main issues, because otherwise, big issue. But they have got to agree on it, and they have got to have come to a compromise on it, and they have got to come to something that each individual one, with all their own problems and all their own issues, has to come to a compromise with, based around the principles upon which the foundation is founded, principles that don't match those that are founded, then we probably wouldn't be going through the council and probably would be told off by the others. But they've got to come to a compromise. I think people really don't understand the relationship between the ethics of an organization and how those individuals come to that compromise within the boundaries of those ethics. And I I think think, I think they're unfair on them in a way because trying to get a group of people, I mean even in this Zoom meeting we couldn't all agree on (laughs) this. How would you get a, ca- a whole load all of planets of- with their own interests and their own? They've all got to agree on it based on a fundamental set of principles they've all signed a box on.
0: I all think that's the sort is- of thing because people always like, oh, we want like a West Wing Trek show with like you know President Archer. And if that would happen, and of course we'd all want that because you know we all have face of the heart, which is something I can say on this podcast because Olivia isn't here to stop me. Anyway. That if that show happened, that's what I'd want to see. I'd want to see this. we know what Federation ethics are, we know what Federation morality is. But I want well, to I see think you should
2: say that but
0: Archer and the Federation Council Council Secretariat or Cabinet or Council Security Council sitting around a table having that question of we are against slavery. What the hell do we do about the Orions? Because they have slaves. And them coming to the conclusion we know they come to because of the rest of Trek that we can't interfere here. We can't, we can do what we can within our own borders, but we can't go in and stop it because we just, that's just the decision that comes to. I, that's the sort of thing, argument Trek needs to have at someone about its Essex, where it sort of makes a point to say, if you don't meet your Essex, you haven't failed. Because you still have them. You still have these things you're aiming at. You still have where you want to be. And that's just <laughs> as important as getting there.
2: I can't, of... I can't guarantee that Kurtz. I can't guarantee that Kurtz will read it, but I've, I've written the pitch for it. But I can't
3: guarantee all, it all of that is very true. But I just feel like it's the fundamental blow to the Prime Directive and just kills the whole thing. That's I mean, important. I
4: feel like this actually kind of segues quite neatly into the final topic, I which think is you're right there, yeah. which is Starfleet doesn't like the Prime Directive and never and. Or does you know? The, I think the topic is and uh, never follows it. I think more accurately, be like... Starfleet doesn't like the Prime Directive, and chooses when it wants to follow it. Yes. Right? Because if you look back, if you look back through, so I was sort of going, oh, oh, well, how many captains have violated the Prime? Direct? Well, all of them, right? <laughs> and if you look at it like Kirk violates it with impunity, pretty much, and all those, there's all these hugely decorated officers. I mean, if you go back discovery, Giorgio takes on Saru as a refugee. Now, to me, that is a that is a violation of the prime directive because Saru should not have been allowed to leave that planet, technically. But she takes one, and as far as I'm aware, there are no consequences to her and her career for doing it. But then also so you've got then you've got Pike who in New Eden um makes it known to this individual that Yes, there are other planets out there which you're not supposed to do. Also, can we? We should really talk about in terms of interventionism and that measure. The sound of thunder, which in my mind is hugely problematic for forcing a major development upon a species without its knowledge or consent.
8: Oh my well, god! You do. Right. You know what
4: I mean, like. <laughs> oh my they, god they, they basically force an entire species to go through through uh, its version of puberty and there is no comeback for, for, for Pike or the crew but, you know i mean obviously you know in the grand scheme of the storytelling it's important but there are, there are there that they the fact that it's a violation of the prime directive isn't or you know general order one which they do have at that point they don't even talk about it. It's just like, well, no, we have to do this now. It's really, really important. We've got to keep doing it. And then, you know, even you know, Picard in Drumhead, it's like, you violated the Prime Directive nine times. Don't get the details on that. You know, I mean, Cisco is literally a god. <laughs> and the impact that that is going to have on Bajor you know, I, he's literally a god. In um, fairness, not his is, decision. No, I know, but he's literally <laughs> a god. He's also literally a 21st century Earth revolutionary figure. Yeah, you
0: does, does Parliament's oh, part 1 and 2 Prime Directive, directive violation? Well, it's it temp- a temporal surely. Prime Directive?
4: Well, it's, it, well, I mean, I kind of view the temporal Prime Directive as an offshoot from the main Prime Directive. Because, I mean, actually, in my mind, Janeway's biggest... Infringements on the Prime Directive are temporal infringements. Yeah, I, think the I te- mean, of all the end Prime Directive game.
0: interpretations, it and time travel is the one that makes sense. Hmm. Like <laughs> saying you can't interfere with the past. Yeah, fine, unless you are a madman who lives in a blue box and kidnaps British women. Don't
8: <laughs> interfere with the past.
2: But yeah, or if you need Wales, Wales.
4: But you know, there's there's literally like the only time the only time people seem to you know Mm -hmm. the only time people seem to get punished for violating the prime directive is when their motivations are bad. That seems to be it. You know, so it's 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 captains having to go and deal with what other captains have done, setting themselves up as god. I think, Cal, this is your topic as well, isn't it? So I'm gonna hand over to you to continue.
7: I'm of the opinion that the the prime directive is is an enforced not not so much as like a active set in stone thing but sort of this nebulous law that's you let the captains do what they need to do and it's there it, it's enforced when they screw up you know like like, like
8: u.s tax law
7: like, <laughs> oh my god it's tax law. <laughs> like like you know the, the captains will violate the the prime directive and they'll they'll Maybe they'll be brought up on charges and then they have to rationalize it to, to their board.
4: The board of inquiry. Like,
7: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, but, you know, our hero captains have violated it so many times that it, it, it's clearly very loosely enforced.
4: It's so... part of what makes them heroic, isn't it? Like, we, we the, the actions that they take that violate the prime directive mavericks are are presented as heroics even though mavericks within within a very very rigid system you know but they never get they never really get court-martialed they never they never i think the only occasion i can see of someone actually facing consequences is in the calvin verse um in into darkness where kirk gets demoted um, because of what happens on Nibiru, but at the same time they are already violating the Prime Directive because they're trying to stop a volcano going off. Again, a lot of the time the captains get killed off before they have to face court martial. That's the other thing that happens with what Star Trek storytelling: bad meantime. captains violating the Prime Directive. <laughs> you know, they get what they deserve because they 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 get killed off, usually wow. by the species they have interfered with. Um, but in in Equinox, there were a, there were a few crew members who survived, and I mean we never see them again. But we also You know, I think Una McCormack might hint at it in her book about uh, her Janeway book, but it's not really clear. Would they have faced charges when they got back to Earth? It. It. And
1: Paris both got demoted for. Yeah, Har- that's director. true. Paris, yeah. Paris
4: got demoted. You're and
1: right. Tuvok, Tuvok, as well. He was a lieutenant commander that, uh, until true. that point, and then after that, it was never officially said. But mm. you put two and two together, so they both received yeah. demotions. And for, then there's for their Captain
0: addicts. Tracy in the Amiga Glory, which um was must our is we, our first episode, and is
3: must we discuss that?
0: We're, we're going to talk about <laughs> it because I've decided we have to talk about the Yellow Menace episode. Okay. Oh, God. So, Ronald Tracy is using his his phaser to commit mass murder. And, like, it's clear, Kirk is like, you're going to go on trial and you're going to go away for a long time. And Tracy's defense is basically, I would have died if I hadn't done this. And Kirk's, the implication is, Kirk's like, that won't hold up in court.
4: Yeah.
0: And that's the only time we see an invention. Tracy doesn't die because he needs to be alive for Kirk to go, we the people. (laughs) It's dumb. Well, listen to our first episode, folks, because I talk, me and Olivia, lose it over how dumb that is. I'm Actually, not
2: gonna... John, just, just going, John just going... those were
0: our worship words. You will not speak them.
2: <laughs> just just going back briefly to the Into the inter- the inter- Darkness example is the silliest example of like saying the prime directive is you should not be violated, we're going to demote you. It's like if he hadn't done it there would be no one left alive on that planet yeah. to develop a culture of any kind so they weren't yes. interfering with that ha-
3: and, <laughs> and that's but the pen thing again
4: but again it's he he doesn't he he doesn't get demoted because they're there i mean they're obviously it seems like they're obviously there on a, on a sanctioned mission to stop this volcano blowing yeah. up but he gets demoted because he goes and rescues spock and they see the enterprise but it's like you already interfered with this culture, though. You already by allowing it to survive, like you have already interfered. Well, oh, they didn't it's remember fun. that.
1: That's insane.
4: You know, again, again, they, this they is again really when we're talking study, about.
1: Though, they weren't meant to do the volcano. You know, we're yeah, talking that was about one of the things that the Pike brought um, up afterwards. Was
5: that you know somehow they survived?
3: I really don't understand <laughs> how a natural disaster is apparently. Uh, an acceptable way for a society mm-hmm. to end we seem to value to what, life.
0: This all comes back to what Bodhi said about, ev- and actually a lot of people said that Bodhi made clear point of Marx's history, is that the Federation has decided there is a certain way history should work, and that if certain events hit a species and they get yeeted out of existence, whether it is volcanoes, climate change, Nikita Khrushchev blowing the world up, whatever it is, <laughs> Space that's tough. To like, that is no, what's happened. You
7: know, no, because the prime like, directive Direct other... is. Sorry. In in Star Trek Nemesis, Picard, Worf, and Data take their you know space yeah. dune buggy to a pre warp planet to pick up pieces of of a uh, data, and they get into a firefight with the locals and take off in their ship, and they never mention anything about it being a prime. Prime mm. Directive violation. What
3: about what about um to uh to thine own self or whatever that one is thine own where Data uh loses his memory and accidentally
0: gives uh civilization radiation oh, yeah, yeah. poisoning.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel just like there's a said, room in the JAG again, office think,
0: at Starfleet Command, think, just full of people ticking. Okay, violation, violation, not a violation, not a violation, violation, not a violation. So that,
2: that would be the that would
4: be lawyers. That would be like the full legal directorate, right? I the yeah. Federation Council. So the Federation Legal Council being like, well, what do we think about this one, everyone? Yeah. There is just oh, an Monday office for private directive
6: violations at Starfleet yeah. Jack. Yeah, that show would be the other Star, Star Trek Discovery.
8: No, I think
0: <laughs> if, I, I, if that <laughs> show existed, it would have to be like lower decks level of just, these people are overworked and underpaid and they're just they're stuck wish. in this basement office. Like, Wait, so he, he fired the nuclear warheads story? into each other. I guess that's
4: not a violation. So one of, one of the other things I find really interesting about Starfleet and Prime Directive, um, and I think it, because it does start to have knock-on effects, is when they have officers, people joining Starfleet from non-aligned worlds, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I think if you were going to be really strict about the Prime Directive, you'd go sorry, your planet is not it, because you might learn stuff and then you go and interact with your people, if you are interacting with your people, and that could have an impact. But, you know, we have Kelpians, we have Ferengi, we have Klingons, and actually Worf in particular, his involvement with Starfleet and his involvement with the Klingon Empire are, are often at odds, or can or cause a violation, an a, a direct violation of General Order 1. And Picard's role as arbiter arbiter of
3: succession in the Klingon, Mm. in the Mm. Klingon succession dispute. I mean, I mean, I know we've talked about whether or not uh, the prime directive should apply to great powers like the Klingon Empire or even secondary powers, um, which I I simply don't think it should. And also, um, it's silly to to talk about not interfering with a great power because that's not how trade or international mm. relations works. They necessarily interact with you. Um, even if you only have sleeper ships, you're necessarily interacting with the, ra- with the rest of the cosmos. Um, but I mean, mm. Picard, Picard, who we usually think of, I mean, who I, I find some rather obnoxious, frankly, as this doctrinaire upholder of the prime directive is in many ways, one of its most flagrant violators.
0: Oh yeah. But I I think it's what is really nebulous is that as I see it in my head, there is the prime directive as this thing about what to do with pre warp worlds. And there is this way it has evolved into a foreign policy principle of the federation, like, you know, bit like, um, Machiavellianism or Bismarckianism, its just evolved into a foreign policy idea.
4: I mean, with forty-seven subsets, I think that in, that to me says Starfleet doesn't like the Prime Directive because they had to create forty-seven different subsets for it to make any sense whatsoever. <clears throat> well, that's general bureaucracy.
0: There's a lot yeah, of people. Like, like... <laughs> I as can a buy point, that. These people aren't being. These people are doing this job. Because they like it, because there's no money and they don't get any wages. So these are people I, who I don't enjoy bureaucracy. Really but I think what we've have come to a sort of general conclusion is the Prime Directive is basically built with more holes in it than a Swiss than Swiss cheese in a sieve. <laughs> and everybody's kind of okay with that in the Federation. But they're also really, really happy to use it as a cover.
8: Oh, I, my I main totally problem pulled, with the Prime totally Directive is.
7: Sorry, yeah, Cow. Like going back in time a little bit for us with the isolationism uh picard the the show picard and Mm -hmm. picard's rescue fleet his rescue fleet was technically a prime directive violation because he didn't necessarily have the the support of the romulan government Mm
8: -hmm.
4: and
7: most of the federation worlds were opposed to it because because
4: of that it's really worth reading una mccormack's book On this, the last best hope, because Mm. it goes into a lot of, and actually for me, I actually found the book much more interesting than the TV show, (laughs) (laughs) because it explores that backstory and all the political issues around what happens with with Romulus and the, you know, and and it is yeah, so it's it's I really recommend it if you can get hold of it because it it goes into all these issues about how the Federation is not in agreement about. Well, and a lot of them are u- want to use the Prime Directive as an excuse to do nothing. Go, well, it's Romulus, it's nothing to do with us, you know, and basically do exactly what they did with Bejor and completely abdicate responsibility for for loss of life. Uh, but it's e- even easier for them to do that because well, we don't like the Romulans, so it's even easier for them to, to but, care less because they go, well, this it actually it removes a strategic accept... enemy.
3: Oh, I was just going to say, I can accept... Uh... A, pragma, a pragmatic federation, that's probably what we see. But I, I don't think that, uh, that, that federation fundamentally isn't uh, living up to its moral principles. And no state ever has, ever in history, never has, never will, never could. But that's still, um, but um, for a state that pr- seems to kind of recognize this, this the federation is awfully sanctimonious.
2: Yeah. yeah that was a no it was also a problem i have with picard in general because watching it i mean i i did enjoy it i think style wise i enjoyed it character wise i enjoyed it setting wise i enjoyed it but political premise was just like no no I no. don't
3: understand what they're doing with like <laughs> no. the, the ex-borg or whatever what, what you know yeah,
4: like that like i said that's why i i actually enjoyed having the backstory fleshed out and i went that's the show i wanted. to to watch actually okay, um, that's what I, read, I wanted um, to
0: see now. Um, if like so... listening
4: preemptive <laughs> this
0: book is great thank you for writing it <laughs> come but on uh... our
3: podcast sometime it's not my <laughs> podcast <laughs> it's, not my, it's not your
8: podcast <laughs> <laughs>
2: to be fair I'm on the Picard <laughs> there, there are they are precedents again because Romulus did not ask for the assistance and again mm. you don't generally interfere unless you're asked to so in all the like Kosovo for example they did not go they did not go in because they thought it was bad they, they got a rec- it was voted on and they got asked to come mm. in mm. um but and the same thing as well with interference in places whether it's sub-saharan Africa or anywhere they they're asked to come in they don't they don't just go in because they bash in, sort everything out and go out. Mm-hmm. That's fair. The, um, so there is a there is a political precedent for that. The only thing that annoyed me as well was later on the Romulans like, You didn't finish helping us, now we all hate you. It's like just... I mean it's the kind
4: of. I think it kind of comes up that, you know, a lot of the Romulan populace were not made aware of what was going on because of how secretive Romulan society is. So all of these people are going, why didn't you come and help us? Because they didn't know that their own government knew what was going on and basically said no thank you to help. I mean, you know, it's I the just classic, they... we, can shift, we can shift the blame onto the Federation now that there's no Romulan, you know. It, you know, there, there's that whole idea of, of, our situation sucks and let's blame someone else you, you for it. You, which if was... If your planet's about to be destroyed, would you really say no?
0: I mean, let's just the fact that the Romulan's <laughs> Are uh, you know? These are the guys who the Borg are destroying all the of their settlements in the neutral zone, and they turn around and go. I wonder if we could blame the Federation.
8: For
4: this. right? You know, but I mean, I think uh, also, yeah. You know, if yes, if yes, anyone I mean,
3: would do that, it's the Romulans.
4: By by I the mean, time enough Romulans knew that the situation was a mess, it was too late to ask for help. I uh, could yeah. imagine like yes.
3: eighteen different um. Federation resolutions that are like you know. We don't uh, like sympathy, it but we're gonna have to go along with it. But we both, got to do like, it, yeah. I was, I was gonna say like sympathy and solidarity with the brave Mujahideen fighters of Bajor. I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> this horror novel is dedicated to the brave resistance of the, the Tarpacom province. Oh my god.
8: <laughs> Number three. Brave resistance
3: cell of Shakar Edan. Oh my god.
8: And it's like.
2: It's a general, it's like, it's a general issue I have with I have with a lot of the more modern incarnations anyway, and sort of like rogue elements within the Federation, and kind of like, especially, don't even get me started on Section 31, but mm, that, kind of like, the like plans going on here, it's like, no, institutions are impossible to move once, once you put them in a certain direction, they just take so many years of changing and reform that once they've voted to do something and they go off and do it, they will do it, and they will probably end up in there longer than they want to even if rogue elements within it don't want them to be in it. Mm-hmm. And they, And the same thing with like I just have to put it in there. Just Section
4: 31 would not exist in that. It's a bit like the UN Charter like the...
0: having the Thunderbirds in it somewhere. And
4: especially, <laughs> especially fleshing it out it's, to the point like, where it's, it's an the entire U- age. It's the UN <laughs> Charter creating
2: yeah.
8: unit.
4: Yeah. It's like... There's an agency, and you're
2: like, which would involve phenomenal amounts of paperwork. We won't For talk what about it's worth. No,
3: like, by Deep like Space Nine, Unit 31 is like three guys. It's like um, yeah, one guy. The, witch f- it's like the witch finders in uh, Good Omens. Like, it's like one guy in a shed I who mean, like, pretends it, he leads if you take a massive army. World, See, I
2: if think that would be a real world be example. It would be an intelligence agency above NATO. And you're like, no, it's just not going to fucking happen.
5: Um, I've I've always actually really liked Section 31 in there And I think it makes perfect sense Given the sort of polity that the Federation Is meant to be Um, I think it
0: makes sense in Deep Space Nine Where it is three blokes in a room Who think they're all George Smiley
2: You've got an organisation the size of the Federation full of member planets that are never going to sanction an agency like that above their level. As for that whole, like, the the Federation is supposed to be all nice and moral and it doesn't want to make these decisions, so it gives them to this
4: little section that absolute... I think what Bodhi's probably trying to get at is that why do you think they know about...
5: Yeah, both of you yeah. to assume that
0: they right? know it Bodhi, exists. Bodhi, is
4: that your... are <laughs> not
5: necessarily go that far, although it's, it's quite possibly a, a point there. Like, this is as... I mean, Section 31, as we know from Enterprise, has existed on Earth since before the Coalition of Planets, let alone the, the United yeah. Federation of
8: Planets. <laughs> so the idea no, that no it... but I'd like to hear, <laughs> yeah,
4: go, carry, sorry, carry on, but I'd really like, I'm, like, I'm really curious as to the rationale as to why it would mm. exist. Right, I can totally understand why you go, oh, it can't exist. But I think it's really interesting about, like, it can exist. Because... Like, the one, the one I think the fact it. that
5: it exists already on Earth um, means that, again, I mean, there is, that, there is that institutional inertia. It's very hard to get rid of those sorts of things. The other point is that I can imagine it going supranational if basically the idea of what first was the coalition then became the federation was always intended as something of, well, it, it was effectively an experiment and a dangerous one at that, as we see in Enterprise Season 4, um, when we have this sort of, yeah we'll give it a go but we're pretty reluctant about it and you know this is, this is all a bit of a gamble the very idea that you would include within the formalised structure of something like that an organisation that works outside of the legal framework of no. that union in no. order to keep it safe there's basically
0: two ways to view section 31 which is that if it is a sanctioned part of how the federation works Tansy is right and it's done But if it is how it's presented in DS9, in which it is Hmm. people, individuals, have decided they must protect the Federation from the things that go bump in the night.
2: Oh, no. Again, I have an issue with that.
0: Then there's other issues with that. But it's not going to be it doesn't really undermine it at least federation. that at
3: least makes more sense. It makes more sense.
0: How, I that mean, still how you
7: know, the, the intelligence agencies in the United States did operate yeah. throughout like the, Are 60s, the section thirty one, the 70s, Pinkerton. I don't
3: know, section thirty one is sort of like the anthrocentrism of the federation, like taken to an extreme, like we are the human vanguard, you know, the other races mm. aren't good enough for this, it's our job now.
8: But that, that said, oh man,
3: that's very Vulcan.
8: The- <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> Vulcan. Oh, I oh, say,
0: no fighting at the war room.
2: So <laughs> I do. I do. The other element of Section Thirty-One that I have the biggest issue with, as well, is that the one that irritates me more than anything else, more than the fact it doesn't exist, is this is this is this is television naivety. It's like the Federation is supposed to be this moralistic organisation, but it has big hard choices to make, so it divests it to another. Way. <laughs> no, it you, no. Yeah, like, the hard choices. Like, that Section yeah. Thirty-One <laughs> is supposed to be making. And on Monday and morning my... at the UN. It's like the hard you choices.
4: You can also, I mean, you can also argue like with the whole idea of, you know, the Federation not intervening with Bajor and Cardassia it already is quite happy to make those hard decisions without needing to, yeah. to farm it out to someone What's, else.
0: They're That's very, very willing to quarters. sell
4: planets down to, to just,
3: you know, sell planets literally to the sell planets. Better. They have
0: literally <laughs> sold
3: planets. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. They don't need sections oh, 31. Oh I mean there's nothing the, the, for you know the the,
3: the the creation of the DMZ with the Cardassians is you know probably the most egregious example but there are plenty of others also did no one suggest joint administration or exclaves or anything like that
0: no nobody read the nobody read the Treaty of Westphalia when they drew up the DMZ <laughs> that's all I'm saying.
3: Actually I oh, I still don't understand how Picard made a fucking blockade
0: I think it went vertically. That's all I'm saying. It I did, think it went
8: but vertically. But can't you just fly? Like around? We see that map.
0: I think it goes from the bottom to the top. <laughs> and, like, the Romulans could have gone under it, but it would have taken Commander like, Sela- a month <laughs> and Commander time. Commander Selah is it. like, curses, I only think in two dimensions. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <into the back. laughs> <I> can't <laughs> end <laughs> <way down>. So <laughs> Actually, that's something. That- there are some mentions of beta candle, like some trade routes go under the federation. Like there was a negotiated Kadassian Klingon trade route that just goes under the Federation. Which is literally dumb. under the table.
7: But I you know what? I think I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it.
8: But I think that. The I mean, big fly. thing
7: about that is like going around takes a lot more time than going through in yeah. three-dimensional space. If
3: you're trying to, like, st- if
7: you could to back up the house of, the Earth, of Duras,
3: I
0: feel like you'll take eight more
7: hours. Just, well, I think there's a whole
0: point. <laughs> I, I think the whole thing is that the the Romulan supplies are coming in like it's like at the minute supplies because the moment the the Federation ships on the border, the Duras start whining about. Yeah, that was, that was stupid.
3: That was stupid. I don't it? understand how that how how that was any sort of a civil war if the Duras were that outgunned. But it's the Duras mime. are the
0: Francisco Demerendas of the Klingon Empire. Don't see
8: these things.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> they are incompetent from start to finish. They had one good thing, and that was the time they framed the Mo the f- the Moog the family of Moog for the for the massacre on whatever colony war for them. That was their only good step. Everything on seems to be a shit show for them. Because apparently there's I one won't.
3: Klingon planet and it's Kidamer.
0: Can we just have appreciate that like through all of the original series, the original series film, is like the Klingons have slavery. They conquer planets and enslave people. You know they are undiabolically horrible and unashamed about it. And
4: there is no and then by the next that generation,
0: between and the next generation, they've changed.
4: Any better? Yeah. Yeah, it's like are, are and there is
0: even an episode where, like, there is a rebellion. There is a planet rebelling from the Klingon Empire. The Federation's like, well, that's not. We're gonna have to do something about that. It's not, no, yeah, they. There's inter- there's inter- while it. while
4: leaving while leaving Bajor to the mercy of Cardassia, yeah, like. like while living, make sure
3: on, to the cruel mercies of Scream Ducat.
2: Yeah. They are, I mean, they are the major power in the area, so Klingons doing think, something would be Do you a think the
3: Federation would would have been okay if it had been the Klingons oppressing Bajor? Because I'm yeah, 100%... Yeah, because, yeah, be yeah
2: <laughs> because it's a major power.
4: It might have an effect on them and sort of be a territorial grab in These somewhere. These weirdos and, with and, their fucking so, ears. So, Who cares? So, t- so t- you're saying that if the Klingons were the ones oppressing Bajor, the Federation would have got involved? Or well, might no, have. No, they wouldn't, wouldn't have have. might have. Yeah, because... The Apparently, in the writers' room, originally it was Federation. the Rom.
3: Apparently, in was- the writers' room, it was the Romulans who were originally oppressing. Basel. But
4: then they would have definitely got involved. Yeah, they would yeah, be, like, have been over there as he
3: almost. I think I suspect it's part of the reason why they changed it because, like, mm. the Federation would care if yep. Romulus mm. were involved.
0: They yeah. would really care. I think one of the things that I think actually make one, of, you know, the whole discovery. Klingon war thing has its problems but one of the things that as I'll be writing Edge of Midnight actually has been quite good is that that war going so badly for the Federation puts all of the nonsense of the 2260s in context because the Federation has just lost a war really badly and they've got to recover as quickly as they can so of course they've chucked the prime director to the window of course they're landing on Organia and Capella and they're ignoring they've got Ardana in who have like a stratified mm. society where the ruling class live in a flying mm. city because they're, they're trying to, they're stop to the dolmen.
7: They're,
8: they're transporting the
7: that. dolmen of, That's
8: of Ilas.
7: Directive uh, exclusion to like anything dealing around the Klingons. Like, oh, oh, oh Klingons are there. We gotta, we gotta mm. get there before them.
2: That's what I did miss out on the on the intervention thing as well. Because if you know that the Klingons are advancing on territories of relevance to you, and they're beginning to get closer, and beginning to impinge on your area that ceases to be of no strategic interest to you. and yeah, it, becomes it becomes of massive interest. interest
8: to you. Too. Somebody yeah. else mm-hmm. interfering in it
2: makes it interfering with you, which means you are involved whether you like it or not, and staying Yeah, out so the prime that?
3: directive mm-hmm. was meaningless to begin with.
4: But, but yeah, was I also, prime yeah. So, is
2: where it is of no interest to you and where it doesn't have a thing. I mean, that's why I'm saying it's kind of like, there is a logic behind it. You're on your starship, you go on, you do not interfere without instructions, but then the council all get together, they all do decide, this is of strategic interest, we need to act, and that's, you go and act.
4: This kind of circles back to Starfleet doesn't like the Prime Directive and ignores it, because at its heart, and I think this is like we we all kind of ignore, at its heart, the Federation and Starfleet is expansive. It, you know, the Federation wants to wants to bring in more worlds. It always wants to. So the po- the idea of a policy of non-intervention doesn't really work if you're trying to recruit new worlds. If you're an expansionist an M&M. like, power, an an
7: expansionist an M&M. power they're, they're an
4: expansionist power
3: with like criteria to meet. But I think, but I think this is this <laughs> insane. Is why,
4: this is why what you're talking about, John. Going, you know, after the the, the the war with the Klingons, they threw the Prime Directive out the window because they wanted to expand. To repair and become safe again, to be bigger and to feel more secure, so it was easier for them to throw the Prime Directive out of the window they probably because it have got in it. the way of their goals.
0: But they I mean, probably would have even considered it throwing it out the window. It would have just been, yeah, yeah. We have inter, we have, we have interpreted it as saying, it doesn't matter here. Yeah, know, it, yeah, yeah. You know, if you know, they might have been sending Federation Marines down to Akamar or something, but halfway across the galaxy, they're still prosecuting Captain, St- you know franken or something for stopping you, a nuclear war no, because but
2: you're involved in a you're involved in a massive massive war of unprecedented proportions you still stick to the fucking connected geneva convention you still stick to point, the rules yeah. of war even if your civilization is on the edge
7: in in the the vulcan hello they say you know they talk about the geneva convention but they put bombs on on the Vulcan dead, which is a violation of the Geneva Convention.
4: <laughs> right. I mean, I think, again, this idea that, that I, I don't necessarily think that the Federation always sticks to its lofty ideals and, and and being very circumspect about the prime directive is possibly the the nicest way they do that.
2: No, but I just, you know, they're not... The rules the rules that you stick to. They're not they're not nice, cuddly rules. They're not. I mean, that's the. I think that's the difference between the television and the real world. Is that when mm-hmm. you've got an organisation like the United Nations, you've got an organisation like the forming after World War Two, because you know what the cost is of not cooperating. Because you've got millions dead and you've got cities flattened. You know what it costs you not to cooperate. Mm-hmm. So you you come together on a compromise of the values that you're going to share as an organisation. There is a lot of leeway within the fundamental values you've put down. There is a lot of discussion you can have about the fundamental values you've put down and you move within them. But if you if you go against them, you choose to leave it because you don't want to stand by those values. There's no, there's yeah, no between the two.
5: That's a really important point, I think, about the, the sort of deciding on values, because one of the points here and one of the points that we've come through in this discussion as well is just like ultimately how vague the the prime directive is and i'll point in this case to the real world example of the universal declaration of human rights um or i mean in my circumstance i i live here in germany so the the first part of the the fundamental law here is um human dignity is inviolable which is also the first aspect of the the universal declaration of human rights nowhere in either document is the concept of human dignity defined um and it's not a legally definable term either so mm. it's sort of like this thing where they basically went okay what can we agree to human dignity that sounds good right moving on mm-hmm. um and, and, and then, effectively i mean you see the same with uh, for instance the u.s constitution when that's formed because that is so vague as well because <laughs> at the time you're trying to get 13 colonies to agree to some shit
2: yeah. yeah. oh, The and that's why you have international arbitration. That's why people you have arbitration to kind of say discussions within those. Were the rules violated or not? It's why you have tribunals to decide whether the rules are violated or not, and what you're going to do if those tribunals. But they are rules. Where is my
3: Star Trek International Tribunal?
4: Right, you know, like we need to, we need to see Star Trek Board of Inquiry panels. Take like, you know, a, take Ash Tyler to the hay. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, also, 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 I'm like. You know, I would like to, to see, you know, Janeway's board of inquiry upon her return from the oh Delta Quad. That would be, you could make an entire, like, 13 episode season out of that <laughs> one really board of inquiry. So, what oh, would
2: you do? Pitching again. Oh, amazing. Amazing. And Mr.
0: Neelix back, exactly.
2: It's, it's sort of <laughs> board, board of inquiry on behavior in conflict is episode six in the pitch. <laughs> so, just saying. I'm,
8: oh God. I'm, really I'm, I'm very excited. that
7: That future Janeway gave. Captain Janeway a, a slight guide to how to get away with <laughs> when she got back.
0: I mean, I think Tansy is kind of right. Is that There are, in the real world, we have, tri- we have rules, and actually Bodie as well, we have rules that are as nebulous as the Prime Directive. But we have courts to do the interpretation of it. We have systems in place. And I think the nature of how Star Trek's written is that nobody wants... Nobody wants the sh- their show about the captain to be dealing with the Star Trek jag of his adjutant building for prime <laughs> director of affairs. We might want that show in itself now, but I think within the context of a Monster of the Week style, it's a bit nebulous. Ooh.
3: And lest we forget, Gene comes did at you? this
0: jag. Yeah, they did do a jag
6: show. That's true. And 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 well, unless
3: we forget, Gene came from all this from the point of view of uh, an infantryman in the Pacific. He was a
0: sailor, wasn't
3: he? Or a sailor, I'm sorry. You know, not like as as, it's not an officer, as someone who's annoyed by the brass.
0: Yes, that's true.
3: Which is why,
4: you know, like Scotty, like I work for a living.
3: Yeah. Exactly. I mean, no, what ex- I'm not sure what Gene did well no, we he wrote about his sex fantasies in sci-fi language but it's fine
0: yeah it's yeah I think it's that thing is that what the project was was imagined was very much shaped by an America going through the Vietnam War but what it evolved into is being very reflective of the world around it, it we, the project is dumb, but it's done because writers wrote it and it's actually been quite interesting to sit here and try and make it make sense and try to understand why it doesn't make sense. And it's been great to get, you know, not just fans, but, you know, people who actually deal with this stuff in the real world, whether as historians or, you know, through their own lives or through their own research, trying to relate it to history as well as fiction. Because, you know, it's important, you know, we Star Trek deals with questions of morality all the time, we're very active and happy to connect questions of, you know, personal um, importance to Trek you know looking at um sexuality or, mo- or race and putting it into Trek but these larger issues you know we don't really talk because they're difficult and they're hard and Trek tried to put moralism and Essex first in how it deals with them and I think it's been quite fun to sit here and hash out why that's difficult for them to do and how that would work and I've enjoyed myself I don't know about you guys
8: that's been brilliant yeah I I was all right, right I guess. Yeah. yeah.
0: And, um, Olivia, was, <laughs> Olivia hasn't been here to bug me about how boring this is, so I can <laughs> submit
8: cool.
0: So yeah, I think that's it for this week. We'll be back to normal next week. And before we go, if anybody has anything to plug, now is your time.
2: Well, yeah, if anyone wants to sort of say, Yay, Kurtz Kurtzman, read it when I send it to him, that'd be great. He's never gonna look at it. But you know, there's there's a few of you here who at least can say it would be nice.
5: I've got something to plug for you, actually, and that is uh, a book that's edited by my partner as well as uh, a colleague of hers. So that's Ooh. by um, Sabrina Mittemeyer and Nakaika um, I which is sure. Fighting for the Future, which is essays on discovery, um, okay. which I actually used for a little bit of uh, revision, so to speak, for this, because there is a chapter in there by uh, international relations people on the use of diplomacy in... Discovery.
1: Nice.
5: Um, so there's plenty in there on how Discovery mm-hmm. relates to old Trek, uh, how it manages to fit within that canon while also reflecting mm-hmm. all of the things in in the modern age, including things we've talked about here, and including all of those other things, like, like John pointed out, with uh, how we deal with things like sexuality and race in um, this more modern context, dealing with a... a um, a franchise that's lasted so long, so I would really recommend it. Oh, um, nice. cool. it's
8: oh, it's got so an book, it. it's a
5: bit, you know, but um, it, it can be a bit pricey, but it's definitely mm-hmm. worth a read. So,
4: I think cool. I would just reiterate my uh recommendation for Una McCormack's The Last Best Hope, which fleshes out the backstory to Picard and does deal a lot with the political wranglings of the Federation and how that actually impact on the rescue effort and um how it parallels with a lot of what we're seeing happening around us now as well actually i think it's just it's a it's a very very well written book even when you know how it's gonna pan out it's so well fleshed out and it's just so intriguing so i would definitely recommend that to you all
6: so i am geeky steven on most of the platforms unless you see my little pony stuff and then it's the other guy who has the same screen name but uh so if you like jokes, that's where I'm at. I also have books, My National Park's about nice. a feral park ranger, and Explain That Science, which is a creationist attempting to explain all of science.
2: Can I, so can if I just that's add your a, jam, Can I just add, I love the glasses, by the way. I really oh, love the thank books. you.
0: They
6: are pretty groovy. Yeah, <laughs> though, though this, it, as this is an audio
0: format, you don't get to
6: see them. That's tough. <laughs> Just take our um, word for it, dear listeners. They are not in the visible spectrum, uh, listeners. You have to just understand that. Imagine them. All right. Um, anything
5: else, Plank? No? Nope. All right.
7: Um. Uh, I guess I am on Star Trek Online as at Zarworm, C Z A R W Y R M, um, among several fleets, including Olivia's Reign of the Blue Boys
0: i <laughs> will be pleased to know it's been mentioned on the podcast. <laughs> yes, we have yet to have an event, but we do talk a lot about nonsense on the in our Discord. Um, last night we talked about Pepsi Man. I'm not going to explain Pepsi Man, you're going to have to find that
6: one out yourself. <laughs> well, we all know about Pepsi Man.
3: Uh,
0: I already plugged
3: myself in the Alan of Troyes video. Episode a podcast. It's
6: in, it's in an audio format We're an audio medium. <laughs> all right, well, John. Thank you for having us. It's
2: thank you. Thank, yeah. you. thank oh, you. thank you very you much. much. You I'm really I'm glad it. you
6: all came thank because, you. Um,
0: you know, I. This is how I. This sort of stuff it distracts me. It distracted me a lot in sort of November when I was doing a lot of work, and I thought a lot about thinking a lot about it a lot more. My own plug here is, um, I am currently writing a. Star Trek history of the Federation of Klingon Cold War is called The Edge of Midnight. I'm going to put a link in my Twitter bio at some point. But um, I've written one chapter. Please go give it some love. Um, I kind of mm. do some fun stuff. Lorella's a war criminal. Um, sorry. But uh, yeah. Um, So thank you all, actually, for coming and showing interest in this. Because it's, um, you know, there's people love... I think this is just what Trek is about, is that it's a piece of massive crazy, dumb, nebulous thinking that a lot of people spend a lot of time doing. And we like, get to do it as well. You time. can actually actually talk about it. Yeah. Like, and we get to have these discussions in a venue which is a bit less terrifying than the real world, which is good.
5: <laughs> yeah. If I can just quickly butt in there, John, because you you mentioned just before that it's nice to have people who would like who who are historians and others who, who focus on this sort of thing in the real world. For a historian like we, there are things that we really like, but we're terrified doing, and that's what if. Yeah, um, that's that's definitely something that always interests us. You know, it interests everyone. This whole speculative: what if this had happened? What if that mm. had happened? Um, speculative fiction and science fiction, and Star Trek in particular, because it's got this huge lineage, is really useful for this. If you happen to be sort of nerdy enough to love it. Um, and also have that great interest in history as well, because then you can play around with that sort of stuff without it really, for want of a better term, mm-hmm. mattering. So it's, it's one of those things where you can apply that um, historical process, you can apply that analytical skill to something where it doesn't matter if you, you know, make a horse's ass of yourself um with with a bit of speculation so you know it has been i i lied before it wasn't just all right it's been a lot of fun so thank you so much
8: all
0: right we'll be back next week normally and we'll see you all next time i've been john and these have been some of my crazy prime directive guests